1 John chapter 1. This morning we are celebrating Reformation Sunday, which means, among other things, our service is a little bit different. The kind of songs that we're singing is a little bit different. You may be wondering what all this Reformation stuff is about. So as we begin, let me give you just a quick fill-in. First of all, let us be clear what it is not. It is not a celebration, a celebration or veneration of our church's saints. We are not holding up individuals, men or women, uh, in any way that would bring them undue glory and diminish the glory that we desire to give to God. In fact, even as those people that we would see as historical heroes, people that we would want to be like, we freely admit that they are men and women who have feet of clay. They are sinners just like us. What we do celebrate, though, is the work that God did through them in the recovery of a clear gospel message, a message that brings salvation to all who believe. And the kind of flashpoint for this movement, the, the, the kind of uh, lightning strike, if you will, that, that caused this reformation, this recovery of the gospel to come about, was through the conversion of one man, man named Martin Luther. The historian Michael Reeves says this, Luther's day was a day when the air rang with cries for reform. The universal complaint to be heard across Europe was that the Roman Catholic Church had become as corrupt and worldly as any other institution. Loyal sons of Rome could be heard launching stinging attacks on the abuses seen there. The poet Dante was widely applauded for placing Pope Nicholas III and Boniface VIII in the eighth circle of hell in his work, The Inferno. The great Renaissance scholar Erasmus wrote an extremely popular work about the exclusion of Pope Julius II from heaven. So when Luther began the Reformation, critics of Rome, like Erasmus, assumed he was simply singing from their hymn sheet. And as such, they treated him as an honored member of the club, a welcome fellow critic, a new broom who could sweep Rome clean. In other words, it wasn't just a few people, but it was widely known the church is not what it should be. That the, the church has had sin come and corrupted, and change needs to happen. But what people like Erasmus did not know was that Luther was not just concerned with cleaning up the, the, the obvious sins of the church. What Luther wanted the church and all of God's people, all of the world to see, is that the fundamental problem was that the gospel message had been obscured to the point that no one clearly understood it. No one knew what it meant to have faith in Christ. No one really understood how one could be made right with God. Luther himself had been in this place. He had been a monk in the church, and he had been striving, striving to be a good monk, to be a good Christian. And yet what he found was he was consumed with guilt. He, he could not overcome the feeling that he deserved to be damned forever to hell because of his sins. And that grief drove him to confession over and over and over again to the point that the man to whom he was confessing in the monastery told him, Luther, you're confessing about everything. Go away and come back when you have a really big sin that needs to be confessed. But Luther was consumed with this idea that he could never find forgiveness with God. And therefore, the church said, you know what you need to do? You need to go and teach theology. And he says, what are you talking about? He says, I, I don't even know who God is. How do you want me to go? Why do you want me to go and teach theology? And yet it was a blessing in disguise for in preparing to, to teach and lecture in theology, he had the scriptures before him. And he was reading and he was reading and he was reading. And God was slowly beginning to open his eyes until he came to the book of Romans. And he realized it is by faith that the righteous are justified. 
That is, it is not our works by which we are made right with God. It is not our righteousness by which he forgives us, but it is the righteousness of God freely given to sinners who trust in Jesus Christ. And it was when Luther caught vision of that gospel, that truth, he never blinked. He was, at the beginning of his life, a frightened monk, fearful that God would strike him dead at any moment for his sin, and yet he became a bold reformer. Again, Reed says, Luther faced the wrath of the emperor, the pope, burning at the stake, and the prospect of hell ever after if he was wrong. To all this he managed to reply, I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted in my conscience as captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I can do, I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Luther said, it doesn't matter what anyone else says. If the gospel that I see in the scripture is true, then I have to stand on that, regardless of what anyone else would believe. This was not because Luther was arrogant, quite the opposite. He was humbled and captivated by the power of God and the message of Jesus Christ. And it was to that message that he clung desperately in times of trouble. Because he knew if the gospel that he saw in the scriptures, that faith in Christ receives the grace of Christ for salvation and forgiveness of sins. If that was not true, then he could never be made right with God because he was never going to be holy enough to do it on his own. So the question we ask then is, why are we thinking about this today? Well, most of us think of this coming Wednesday as the day in which we get free candy. But long before that was a tradition, October 31st in the year 1517 was the year that Martin Luther looked at the errors in the church and he called for a debate. And he posted 95 points that he wanted the church to debate about its theology, 95 theses that he nailed to what was the equivalent of the public bulletin board, the church door at Wittenberg. I encourage you, do not post bulletin items on our front door, okay? That's not, we have a separate place for that. He was posting 95 points of doctrine that he thought should be debated. In his mind, it was nothing huge. It was nothing severe. It was, look, we need to think more clearly as a church. We need to go back to the church fathers and the theology that our creeds and confessions say we believe and actually believe those things. And instead, the, the hammering of those nails on that door became thunder that would echo across the world even to today. It was the posting of that 95 Theses that turned heads in Rome and caused peasants to look up with encouragement and faith. Everything changed by his renewed call to see and understand and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in your bulletin this morning, you have a, a short sheet of paper that describes some of the, the key themes, that the key doctrines that, that were recovered from uh, this time of the Reformation. But another one that, that's not listed there, but one that I want us to think about this morning is this, and that is the church should never stop reforming. Luther saw that the corruption that had slowly come upon the church over several hundred years, and he said it, it may take several hundred more to purge all of it away. And that no generation should take for granted that the leaders of the church have got it right. And so therefore, always by the word of God as its authority, the church should always be reforming. Not just the church of the capital C, but the church of the little c. Us, individuals who claim the name of Christ, we should always be reforming our lives by the word of God. What did he call this? He called it a life of repentance. 
the first of Luther's 95 Theses said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In the third statement, he goes even further and he says, its meaning, that is the meaning of the word repent, is not restricted to repentance in one's heart, for such repentance is null, unless it produces outward signs in various mortifications of the flesh. In other words, if you are saying in your heart, I repent, I repent, but your life doesn't change, you didn't repent. You've not turned away from your life of sin. In other words, a life of repentance is an ongoing, heart-level, life-evident reformation in the soul. That's what Luther is talking about. And there's the potential for us to hear that and think, boy, that's bleak, just walking around all the time repenting. Because we think repentance of being something dour and sad. So you, you get this picture of a guy moping around all the time and say, that's repentance. Not at all. That's not what biblical repentance looks like. True repentance is the means by which we grow closer and closer to God. Because true repentance always brings us back to that message that Luther loved so much. And I hope that we love today the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That gospel message is the key to ongoing spiritual reformation in this church and in our individual lives. So this morning, the question that we're going to ask is this. What does that kind of gospel-driven repentance look like? If, if Luther is right, and I think he is because I think Paul teaches it, and I think Jesus teaches it in the New Testament. If a life of ongoing repentance is the key to spiritual reformation, to spiritual renewal and growth in our lives, then what does it look like? How do we do that? How do we repent? To know how to do this and what this life looks like, we turn to God's word in the letter of 1 John. Follow along as I begin reading at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things, so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world. By this we know we have come to know him, we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. 
By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of God this morning. From this passage, we see four basic components of true repentance. That is, four components of a life that is constantly changed by the gospel. And we want to understand these components so that we can live this kind of life. A life that is always reforming by gospel repentance. The first thing that we see is this. We see the goal of true repentance. That is, God. The goal of true repentance. God, if you're taking notes... uh, Just so you understand, my main points all are a statement with a colon and then a keyword. Okay, so uh, this one is the goal of true repentance, God. We see this in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. God is always the starting point for theology. It was for the Reformation. It should be for us today because the Bible itself begins with God and his creative work. And in the course of their movement, the Reformers sought to have a renewed vision of God for themselves and for the church. They wanted to behold Him in all of His majesty and splendor and power and glory. And what they came to understand more clearly than before is what we see ourselves simply reading the Bible, and that is this, God's glory, His majesty, His power, all that is God is no more clearly seen than in the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ. The wonder of God made flesh. Listen to what the Apostle John says. Again, he says that which was from the beginning. In other words, that which was was in existence from before anything else. We have heard him. We have seen him with our hands. We have looked upon him and we have touched him. He was the life that was made manifest. We have seen it and we testify to it. And we proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father. It was made manifest to us. John says this word of life that was from the beginning has manifested himself. That life always was and still is with us. He was with God the Father before and then he appeared to us. This eternal word of life was revealed from heaven and it was revealed to us individually. It's important that we take hold of what John is saying here because what he is trying to do is is drive us deep into the mystery that is the incarnation. That God the Son would come and take on human flesh and live among us. And before anything else, John is saying this is not uh, mystical whimsy. This is not some kind of religious philosophy. This is history. This wasn't just an idea. We touched this man. We beheld him. We saw him. We heard him speak. Jesus came before us. He revealed the Father right before our eyes. Why did he do this? Because that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John says that he and the apostles are proclaiming the incarnation of Christ, the coming of the Son of God, because he wants us to have fellowship with God, just as they have 
fellowship with God. So the point of the incarnation, the point of Jesus Christ coming, God in the flesh, was that we might be with God. That we might be known by God and that we might know God, not as an abstract concept, but as a person. That we might have intimate fellowship with the divine. Notice the fruit of this fellowship. John says we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's interesting, that word can either be our joy, it can be your joy in the Greek. And I think that John is being intentionally vague there because it is both the joy of a Christian to help others know fellowship with God, and yet it is also for their joy that we bring them into fellowship with God. So John is saying it will bring you joy to hear our message, to believe, and to come to have fellowship with God, and it will bring us joy to know that you likewise have that fellowship with us. And ultimately, the Bible shows this is what life is all about. As people created in the very image of God, this is who we were meant to be. Life is about knowing God and being known by Him, about having fellowship with Him, and that it brings us joy. In fact, there is no greater joy than knowing we have a right relationship with God. And one of the things that the Reformers emphasize is that theology is not academic. It is not something for the ivory towers. It is for everyday life. It is about knowing God. What could be more important than that for everyday life? There is, however, a problem that prevents us from having this joy. Because there is a problem that prevents us from having fellowship with God. There is a barrier between us and joy in God. And this is the second thing that we see. The need for true repentance. Sin. The need for true repentance, sin. In verse 5, the apostle says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now John has written several books in the New Testament. He's written two other letters that come after this, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He's written the last book, Revelation, and he's written a gospel, a biography of Jesus. And when you read through John's biography of Jesus, you can see that he loves these metaphors of light and darkness. They come up over and over and over again. But John didn't just make that up. John is a, is a Bible man, and for him the Bible was the Old Testament. And therefore, when you go to the Old Testament, you see light when it's applied to God, usually refers to one of two things, either his self-disclosure or his holiness. That means either his revelation of himself, him telling the world, this is who I am as God, or it speaks to the blinding purity of his sinless nature. Both of those themes are strong in the Bible and in 1 John, but here John is thinking of the holiness of God. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is not, comprehend that for a minute. We look around this room, we watch television, we have friends, and it's obvious that no one is perfect. Everyone has flaws, even us. God doesn't. There is no flaw. There is no imperfection. God is not sinful in any way. He is never unkind or unfair or unjust. He is never cruel or hateful. He is never anything but perfect and holy and righteous. So if you can even imagine the, the, the purest diamond that you could find or the clearest, cleanest ocean to go and vacation where you're out and you can still see 50 feet down into the waters, clear as glass, or if you, if you look up into the sky and you think about the, the, the burning, unyielding intensity 
of the, the nuclear reaction that takes place in the heart of our sun. The, the, the purity of the power and the light and the energy being produced. None of those things comes close to describing the holiness and righteousness of God. He is the very definition of righteousness. God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. That's who God is, but that is not who we are. In verse 8, John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. For us right now, to be human is to be sinful. Because of our first parents and their rebellion against God, His condemnation has come upon this world and it carries and lingers and hangs over every generation that has come. There is darkness in us and John makes it clear that is a problem for our fellowship with God. Even if he says we say we don't have sin. The reality is we've deceived ourselves. We're deceived at best, a liar at worst. Either way, we do not practice the truth. And John is clear, to know God is to walk in the light of God. If we are to have fellowship with God, if we are to experience ongoing reformation in our soul, then we need to come to grips with the fact that we are sinful. That there is darkness in our hearts. That not only means coming to grips with the reality of sin, but also feeling the weight of it. Feeling the severity of God's wrath that justly is provoked to us because of our sin. One pastor who lived several years ago, Jeremiah Burroughs, explains what it should truly mean to feel the weight of our sin compared to the holiness of God. He says when, when he truly begins to see his sin, he proclaims, Oh, I see the angry countenance of an infinite God against me, whose eyes are flaming fire looking with indignation upon me. I see a black dismal cloud of the displeasure of the Almighty hanging over me. I see a most hideous and dreadful sentence of wrath ready to fall upon me. I see woe, misery, and destruction pursuing me. I see blackness of darkness and desolation even surrounding me. I both see and feel the woeful accusations of a guilty conscience within me, condemning me, continually granting upon my soul, and terrifying me with dreadful visions of eternal miseries to betide me. See the chain of black guilt and horror on my soul that I carry with me wherever I go. I see the bottomless gulf of eternal horror and despair with the mouth of it wide open to swallow me up. Do you feel that kind of weight because of your sin? Do you see the, the blinding intensity of God's holiness and how foul our sin is in contrast? If we only felt that, if that's where our thoughts stayed and lingered, then surely we would be driven to despair. Because there's no hope for us. In fact, as we said earlier, that was, that was Luther's problem. He only knew of the holiness of God and his obvious sinfulness. His obvious lack of holiness. And, and someone said to him one time, but Brother Martin, don't you love God? They said, love God? I hate him. I hate him. He, he demands that I be holy and be his child and love him. Yet I can never be holy. How can God demand of me something I can never do? 
Luther was in despair, and yet God gave him hope, and he gives us hope today as well. His desire, God's desire is not for us to remain under the weight of that sin, but to find forgiveness and joy in fellowship with him. Thus we see, thirdly, the hope of true repentance, Christ. The hope of true repentance, Christ. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. John says, walking in the light of God, having fellowship with Him, does not mean that we are to be sinless and perfect. That's not the expectation. In fact, he's writing to believers, to people who already profess Christ, who know Christ. And he says, if you say you don't have sin as a Christian, you are a liar and you are deceived. We all have sin. But here's the thing. If we confess our sin, if we go to God with our sin and say, here it is, I'm sinful and I'm sorry. Then he says, we find forgiveness. We find forgiveness in Christ. Therefore, walking in the light means standing in the light of God's holiness, seeing His holiness in our sin, and the temptation is to run. The temptation is to flee back into the darkness, away from the presence of God, because we love our sin and we are afraid of His judgment. But John says, no, walk in the light. That is to say, confess your sin. See it as something that that should bring upon you the condemnation of hell, but then look to Christ. Confess your sin, turn away from it, continue to walk towards the light and trust that Christ is the Savior that God has provided. He is the righteous one that allows us to have righteous standing before God. John says if we walk in the light in sin, we turn to Jesus because the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Now we need to say it's not as if Jesus' blood actually comes into our life and somehow scrubs us clean. There's no magicalness about Jesus' actual blood. One one scholar, D.A. Carson, says the blood is a symbol of life violently and sacrificially ended, the just for the unjust, that we might be forgiven. You remember John calls Jesus' sacrifice a propitiation. That's a fancy word that means a sacrifice that appeases God's wrath. In other words, God was justly angry at our sin, and yet Jesus' blood became the atoning offering, the offering by which he said the payment has been made in full. The judgment, the condemnation you deserve for your sin has fallen on Christ, and my wrath is justly appeased. Remember how Jesus was described at the beginning? What we saw, what we heard, what we touched, that very life, Christ himself became flesh. The word made flesh. John says for three years this was our experience of him. Every morning waking up and seeing him there. Already gotten up if you read the gospels, most likely praying. We saw him eating food. We saw him sweating in the Palestinian sun. We saw his hair and his beard growing, needing to be cut. Eventually they saw blood drip from his wounds. Heard him yell as spikes were driven through his hands and his feet and held his lifeless body as it was put into a tomb. But they also saw him three days later. 
He had died on the cross, but he came back to life. And again, they beheld him. They touched his body. They spoke to him. They saw him eat and ate with him a breakfast that he himself had prepared for them. Glorified, yet still physically in their midst. This Jesus who died and who rose again for the salvation of sinners. This is the one to whom we look. In our experience as God's people to achieve an ongoing reformation, we do not look for a new remedy, but the same remedy that we found for our sin when we first came to Christ, namely Christ. You say, God, I am a sinner. Look on your son who died for me and have mercy on me. You're not asking God to save you again, but you're asking him to apply the same remedy now to the fellowship that you have that you did to the condemnation you once had, namely the blood of Jesus the righteous. In this way, Christ stands like a lighthouse to us in our spiritual poverty. Uh, last year I was uh, looking online and there was an article about the best lighthouses the, the, uh, in, in the nation. And uh, several in Michigan were, uh, were in there. We're, we're, we're kind of known for our lighthouses. Think about what it would have been like Years ago, before sonar, before GPS, before even radio. And, and to be coming into the bay in a ship. Imagine it fogged out so that you, you literally see nothing. You're simply following on faith, a bearing in a course that you plotted out with a compass and a map and a stopwatch for time. Knowing your speed. And you're realizing if we get this wrong, we're going to run aground. We may not survive. The ship and the cargo will be lost. In the midst of this uncertainty of your safe arrival, what do you see? But suddenly, the flashing of the light in the lighthouse. A beacon calling you to safe harbor. Likewise, when we feel the weight of our sin and despair that God may not love us or forgive us, He may condemn us and send us away, there stands Christ as a beacon of hope for our soul as a spiritual lighthouse beckoning us to God to find forgiveness through Him. This is the essence of walking in the light of God, not living shamelessly, carelessly in sin, but confessing our sin before God, trusting it's Christ alone that can and will cleanse us from sin when we seek Him. Finally, we see this, the evidence of true repentance. The evidence of true repentance, obedience obedience in chapter 2 verse 3 john says by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands whoever says i know him but does not keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him but whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of god is perfected by this we may know that we are in him whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked if we've gone to God, if we've experienced conviction of sin, repented by faith in Christ, how will our lives be different? How do we know if we're truly experiencing spiritual renewal? John says we see it in how we live. We will live like Christ, and namely, we will walk in a life of love. He says, what does he say? It is a new commandment that I give you, but it's not really a new commandment that I give you. Well, what does he mean? Well, what is the command to, to, to love? We see that all throughout the Old Testament, don't we? In fact, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment in the, in, in the whole Old Testament, he says, basically, there's two. The first is, love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. And the second is, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Both times, he's quoting from the Old Testament, from the law itself. And yet, John is saying, it is new now because 
Jesus comes in ultimate fulfillment of what it means to love God and love your neighbor. He is the ultimate example and demonstration and becomes the standard now of what it means to love God and his people. Therefore, the way in which we know that we have come to truly repent, to truly know God, to to have fellowship with him, is that we seek to imitate Jesus. We seek now to love God and to love others. And specifically, he says, when we think about loving others, do we love those who are in the church? Do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ? When we think about the, the example that Christ has given to us, we ask ourselves, how would we sum up the love that Christ showed? And if it was in one word, it would have to be sacrifice. Christ's love for his people is summed up and embodied in his willingness to die for them. In fact, Jesus himself said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. It was on the cross that Jesus died to secure our salvation from God's wrath against sin. He took what we deserve that we might be forgiven by God. But that was not the only time that he showed love. That was the high point. That was the apex. But all of his life is being lived in sacrificial love. Think about it. He gave up. He sacrificed his glory, his reputation, his physical needs like hunger and comfort. He sacrificed wealth and safety, all out of love for his people. And when we live that kind of life, it's not that we're earning fellowship with God. It's not that we're earning righteousness with God and salvation. We are showing evidence that we already have it. The Swiss reformer, John Calvin, a man who agreed with Luther and followed his theology, he knew the work of the Reformation would never truly reach its goal. It would never be done. There was never a point when this movement that they started could be said, it's over, it's finished. And when he read Ephesians 5, when Paul says, Christ loved the church and gave himself for that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present to it himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy without blemish. Calvin said, nevertheless, it is true that the Lord is daily smoothing its wrinkles and wiping away its spots. Hence it follows that its holiness is not yet perfect. Such then is the holiness of the church. It makes daily progress, but is not yet perfect. It daily advances, but as yet has not reached the goal. Calvin is saying there is an ongoing need for reformation, but it is always one driven by hope and not despair. For the way in which we experience reformation is by a gospel-driven repentance. It is a repentance that knows I long for God and yet my sin stands between me and God. And yet God in His love has provided the remedy for that sin, namely Christ. For us this morning, if we desire a spiritual reformation for us and for our church, then we will see God, repent, and believe. And reformation will follow. On this, we stand, we can do no other, may God help us. Father, we are thankful for your word above all else. For it stands constant across the ages as the means by which your people are shaped and changed and brought to saving faith. Father, though we appreciate the work of men and women who sacrificed much, that we might stand here today with a clearer understanding of the gospel. Father, it is not so much them that we honor, but you, the God of our salvation in whom they believe. May we also believe, God, and may we continually believe 
we might be changed more and more into the image that you have called us to be, a holy and blameless church in Christ. Father, we know this is not only what you want, but this is the fellowship that brings us joy. So God, may we repent with a gospel-driven repentance for fellowship and joy with you. It's in Christ's name that we pray.